There is a scene in an old movie called uh, The Cowboy Way. You may never have heard about it, but it's a, it's a movie uh, starring Woody Harrelson, who you probably may remember from Cheers, if you're old enough to remember Cheers. And this movie is about two cowboys, two rodeo cowboys, who come, uh, go east, they go to New York City to help a friend of theirs whose daughter is missing. That's the premise of the movie. They're going out, these two cowboys come to the big town, they're gonna help their friend whose daughter is missing. It sounds kind of serious, but it's a comedy. So, uh, this one scene that sticks in my mind, uh, Woody and his friend walk into this kind of swanky, sophisticated hotel in New York City. They got their cowboy hats on, they got their vests, they got, you know, boots. They're cowboys. And they walk into this uh, swanky hotel and they walk up to the desk and the woman who's attending the desk is a very sophisticated, obviously urban person, very at home in the New York world. And Woody is starting to talk to her and he says to her, he says, we ain't from around here. I love that line. <laughs> this is probably one of the most unnecessary things that was ever said. It is clear that they ain't from around there. As a friend of mine used to say, it is blatantly obvious to the most insensitive observer. In their boots and hats and jeans and accents, it is clear they belong to a different culture. Even so, the character that Woody plays doesn't seem to recognize that that's obvious. He doesn't know that it's obvious that he belongs to a different culture. He feels the need to clarify that. He doesn't know how deeply he is embedded in a certain way of life and how obvious it is for someone else to see that. We Americans uh, think of ourselves as very individualistic, and we are very individualistic. But in foreign countries, it is often obvious and sometimes painfully obvious who the Americans are. I don't know if you've had that experience before. When I was younger, it was even stronger. We are all embedded in some culture, some nationality, some language group, some socioeconomic level, some ethnic heritage, some reason, region of the world. We all are, and we don't think about that because it's just who we are. So it's not something we spend a lot of time analyzing, unless something happens that shows us how different we are from some other people with a different set of cultural assumptions. So these characteristics that we have are not usually things that we choose. Most of us who speak, if we speak English as our first language, we didn't really make a decision. So our parents didn't say, all right, you're going to be learning a way to talk now. Which would you prefer? 
Would you like to learn French? I think I would have taken French, actually. <laughs> oh, okay, we'll do English. We don't make a choice like that. And before we become aware of the process that's happening to us, we've already turned out a certain way. We've already become something without even uh, realizing it. And we may well have adopted certain assumptions about life and about the way the world works that are just part of that growing up process. We didn't really choose them either. We just absorb it. We kind of inhale it. It becomes um, part of who we are. As a matter of fact, white privilege works this way. We just don't even know we have it. <laughs> it's just like, well, we learned to speak English, you know? Anyone who's educated should speak English, by the way. That's one of a cultural assumption that's around certain times. So, and by the way, this is how most people get the religion that they're in, too. It's not like, all right, you're two years old. Do you want to be a Catholic or a Muslim? <laughs> no, it's not the way it works. You just get brought up, whatever your family chooses to do. Or if they choose not to do anything, you get brought up that way, too. It doesn't mean you couldn't change your mind later on. However much we see ourselves as individuals, we're members of a species, of a country, of a tribe, of a social group. And there are different levels of this as well. I was watching a baseball game the other day, interestingly enough. I don't know what possessed me to do that. And I saw, you know, they, they pan the crowd and try to get these little, you know, human interest uh, shots. And so I started noticing the families, and particularly the families with little kids. So you see a little kid, maybe about two years old, maybe even less than two years old, and they're with their parents, and this little kid's got cub stuff all over, you know, a shirt, a hat, you know, maybe a glove. Uh, a Cubs ice cream cone. And I said to myself, they are brainwashing these kids. <laughs> but it's just we grow up in a certain way. And we adopt a lot of who we are from what happens to us at, in this process. It's uh, people who root for baseball teams it's often an inherited allegiance. It's inherited, it, and it's sometimes chosen, but probably more often inherited. So this is the way most people get their views on religion, actually, is that we get brought up a certain way. We follow the religions uh, that we are given as a kid, and then, of course, some people rebel. Some people. And some of the rebels will um, throw away religion entirely, maybe, just crazy. Some will uh, adopt some other viewpoint. That happens too. And some will sort of be searchers and keep thinking about these things and 
wondering about them and considering different, and maybe changing religious viewpoint at different times in our lives. And some of us have done all of these, so maybe at different times. I did the whole re rejection of religion from about age 12 to about 30. So that was fun. <laughs> I don't know how I got off that path. <laughs> it was actually Diane's parents who took us to a UU church and they, they changed my path. Now, another thing that happens is that when we choose a different path of religion or rebel against the religion of our childhood, it often happens that we retain some of the characteristics of that faith, even though we don't agree with it. We retain some of the characteristics because, again, we're hardly even conscious of that. There is a story that I read once. I believe it comes from George Bernard Shaw, but I'm not sure. But anyway, here's the story. There are a couple of uh, guys, Irish guys, uh, having a few drinks. And they're arguing about religion and about you know, there's one's Protestant, one's Catholic. So it's a kind of, you know, and they're arguing about God and stuff like that. And, as, and having a few more as they go along. And so a friend of one of these two guys approaches his friend and says, why, why are you arguing about religion? And everybody knows you're an atheist. And the friend replies, I am an atheist, but by God, I'm a Presbyterian atheist. <laughs> Some things hang on for a long time. So this is what I, this is what we develop, how we develop. In many ways, actually, I grew up Baptist, at least part of my growing up, and I have many Baptist ways of looking at the world, I, although theology is not one of them. I do not agree with the theology, but I find that I, I'm sort of a Baptist UU. I'm gonna invent that organization and call it Boo. might be some prospects out there who would, like, who would like to join. I will tell you that in our classes on Thursday night when we discuss things about religion, and it's a lot of fun, by the way, if you haven't come to Thursday night, it's a lot of fun. I often notice, or think I notice, that uh, you know many people in our church are very skeptical about traditional religion. Not everybody, but many people. And especially, uh, I mean, we have atheists and humanists, a very common thing to be in our church. Um, and one of the things I hear on Thursday nights is that talking about traditional religion, that this story is not true. You know, this, this virgin birth, this is not true. This flood, this, this is not true. That resurrection, that's not true. It didn't happen. It didn't really happen. Now, one of the things that I think uh, happens with us 
is that even though we uh, disagree with certain positions, we tend to keep the way of thinking about those positions that the conservative tradition has taught us. So for example, for a lot of conservative Christians, whether or not something actually happened in the Bible, whether or not it happened is a really important point. It's super important. And when we get into long discussions about whether or not it happened and how we think it didn't happen and all that, in a sense, we're affirming that very conservative point of view that it's super important whether that happened or not. And we're sort of putting our energy into that question. And uh, so I think that's another way where old patterns that we have developed continue in us. We humans, I think, probably overestimate our individuality and probably underestimate the power of the social context of our lives, where we come from, who we are. You know, there's some things, just the fact that we speak English is a powerful uh, characteristic. Most of us speak English as a primary language. Is, you know, because there are things you can't even say in English. So there are ideas in other cultures that, that we, don't, we don't even know what those ideas are because they don't exist in our language. Um, in Spanish, there may be a way to do this, but I, I don't know it. it. But in general, in Spanish, you cannot say, uh, I like this. I like this book. That's not the way it's said in Spanish. The way it's said in Spanish is the book pleases me. There isn't any I like the book. And that's a hard thing for students to get used to. The way you say it is the book pleases me. That's just the way you say it. That's a different idea. That's a different idea. So when we, when we learn certain languages, uh, we're, we don't sound like French people when we talk, do we? No. We don't sound, we don't use the mannerisms. We don't, we're not as cool, actually. <laughs> I don't think. I mean, you can have your own opinion about that. I think we're not as cool, actually. All right. So we are, we are you know, there's a river, all kinds of rivers flowing through our souls. So in my case, I'm a Chicagoan, I'm a Peorian, I'm a former Baptist, I'm a Cubs fan, I'm an American, in, despite the fact that I'm mad at America, you know, it, it doesn't matter, I'm still an American. I'm not any other nationality, even when I'm angry with America. I'm a baby boomer. I have certain assumptions about life based on that. I am what is uh, called in our culture a white person. I'm a native English speaker. I'm a Midwesterner. I didn't choose these things. They are part of who I am. Interestingly enough, in our denomination, most UUs did choose to become UUs. About 90% of UUs did not grow up as a UU. That's an amazing, amazing number. And maybe that's a good thing. 
You use are often people who have thought quite a bit about religion and we're often people who have made a different choice. We prize our right to make these choices and that certainly makes a lot of sense. That's a precious right. And we are the heirs of the early Americans who fought for religious liberty. We're so fortunate in that respect and it's so important that we protect that. It is also true that sometimes we find that our love of individuality or what we see as our individuality can be in conflict with our need for community or the need of our whole society for community. We are sometimes reluctant to take a stand as a community because that may seem to be in tension with our individuality because we respect everyone's position. We often sometimes don't want to take a stand about something. That's a hard problem for us and it comes up over and over again. Or we may not always be receptive to partnering with different people in the community because we're not sure if they're okay or that we can work with them. We're a little worried about that. And so we may not always take advantages take advantage of opportunities to partner with people. People of color may get impatient with our UU individualism and see it as an unwillingness to be connected in the struggle for justice. People of color have certain assumptions they grow up with too, and they are often different than the assumptions of what's called white people. And our, think about the way we think about police. There's just a whole different set of assumptions there, a whole worldview that is different. So sometimes our individuality and our wanting to protect the individual may uh, come in conflict with us being able to connect across boundaries with different folks. Increasingly, liberal theologians argue that we religious liberals would benefit from moving into a more interdependent worldview. To see ourselves not just as strong individuals, which we are, and we're not gonna let go of that, but to see ourselves not just as strong individuals, but individuals in community. Individuals who are always in community and never not in community because there isn't any other way to exist on the planet. We're always part of communities. But it may be that we need to emphasize that more strongly in the way we do our particular religious ways. To see ourselves as individuals in constant state of community with Friends, family, neighbors, other religions, other people of other nations, other creatures out in the woods with all of existence. All the creatures out there are in communities. There's no, there's absolutely no question about that. There's no, there's no one bee that just is doing its own thing. Jonathan Haidt, who is the author of The Religious, the Righteous Mind, talks about bees actually and talks about the hive effect where all are working toward the common good and then separateness falls into the background. 
And human beings have that kind of experience sometimes where we're actually just working together so nicely and so beautifully that the, the individual individuality just kind of falls into the background. It's kind of, if the choir has a really good day, singing in the choir can feel like that. You just, the separateness is not as important because you have a, a common enterprise that you're doing together. Going to rallies can be like that. And I'll just tell you, although you may not respect me for it, but it can happen at a baseball game too. <laughs> we feel part of a greater whole in that kind of situation. Of course, we you use are never gonna let go of our critical minds and we should never let go of our critical minds. That we cannot give that up. We can see in our society what happens when the idea of truth or the idea of the critical mind is weak. And we can see how that's a dangerous thing. And so we cannot let go of that and we should never let go of that. But in these dire times, we also need people of goodwill, all kinds of people, working together to get through these very challenging times that we live in. We have to protect individual rights, but we also have to work together against all, work across all these boundaries of religion, belief, race, nationality, language, class. You know, most of that stuff, it's just accidental that we turned out a certain way. You know? If, if someone grew up Muslim, they just grew up Muslim. Or if they grew up Baptist, they just, they just grew up Baptist. There is, this is one reason I spend part of my time on interfaith work, because I believe that we need those connections across religious boundaries. It is not a question of agreement. It has very little to do with agreement. It's not about whether we believe that there was a flood or somebody else thinks there wasn't. It, it's not something to spend our time on. What we need to spend our time on is making those connections so that we can meet the challenges that are serious in the world with the cooperation of as many people as possible. It's not going to be the UUs who by themselves and save the world. Believe me, that's not going to that's not going to work. Not going to work. So it's our job to develop those partners. That's part of the reason that I want to go to Toronto in November to this Parliament of the World's Religions. It's it's important to create those relationships and have that sense that we can do things together. This experience, too, of seeing people as embedded in social contexts which determine who we are, not entirely, but to a great extent, helps me to be more tolerant. It helps me to meet another person and not, not just start out deciding whether they're okay or not. Just drop that whole thing and just, just try to understand how the world looks to another person who grew up with a different set of assumptions that mostly their parents taught them. I realize that people are not Hindus or Muslims or Sikhs because they disagree with me. It mostly is because they grew up embedded in a culture of that type. 
This seems to be the way that cultural evolution works. And of course, we will never let go of our commitment to religious freedom and to individual rights. We'll never let go of that. The right to leave a religious group or form a religious group or immigrate to another country or even to change gender or even support a different team than the one your parents taught you to do. <laughs> when I'm with my cardinal friend fans, then we, we are peace on earth. We are peace on earth. We UUs are an individualistic people, but we also love community. We love our potlucks, our gatherings, our opportunities to work together to heal the world. To some extent, these tendencies toward community are somewhat intent, in tension with our individual streak of being just the most individualistic people in the world, but it's not a fatal tension. It's something to balance and to live. The world is in need of personal freedom, of rights, and it also stands in deep need of interconnected communities that can work together. We are always individuals in community. There aren't any individuals not in community. We are always in that mode of being. That's what embeddedness means. No man is an island, wrote the poet John Donne back before we paid attention to sexist language. But his idea is right. Our choice is to move outward in expanding communities of inclusiveness, to recognize in ourselves what tribes we belong to and get a perspective on that, get some point of view on that, and then to move outward, connecting with more and more communities and finding ways to transcend these old grievances and boundaries and work together to get beyond the voices of separation and hatred. We need to do that. And it can be done. It is happening. Inclusion in community is the most satisfying way of life and the one that offers the best chance for survival on this planet. In Martin Luther King's words, we must learn to work together as brothers and sisters or we will perish together as fools. With tolerance and understanding coupled with our ongoing commitment to justice and willingness to partner across even difficult boundaries, we can move our culture more toward the kind of life that we long for. So may it be for us.